Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, howdy. Good morning. A few weeks ago, uh, Di and I took our Hall of Fame grandkids. They were recently inducted in the Grandchildren Hall of Fame. I'm sure you saw that article in the New York Times. And uh, we took them to celebrate. We took them to the mountains of Montana. And along uh, with Di and I and the grandkids, we had a colorful collective of let's call them freeloaders, who went to the mountains (laughs) with us. Now, when a true Texan is in the mountains of Montana, a true Texan should endeavor to get seriously lost. I do not mean metaphorically lost. I don't mean whimsically lost. I mean you should experience a sensation of not knowing exactly where you are in the middle of nowhere. One surefire way uh, to accomplish that is to go on a hike with me. (laughs) So early one morning, I led an elite expeditionary team uh, consisting of Claire uh, Holden, my son, on the deck to be my uh, son-in-law, and Diana. Uh, I led this trek on what was supposed to be a a 7.5-mile backcountry, high country uh, journey to Beehive Basin near Big Sky, Montana. How good does that sound right about now? So a couple of hours into the trek, we were post-holing in three to four feet of snow. And there was no trail in sight. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Does that sound invigorating? Uh, Well, that semi reminds me of how I'm feeling uh, about our cultural moment right about now. And just to make sure uh, we're on the same page, I want to administer a brief unscientific Uh, you are limited to choosing only one of the two possible answers. So how are you feeling today about the way things are going as we stumble around in the last vestiges of Western civilization? So just to show of hands, uh, who's feeling flummoxed? Anyone? Okay. And who's feeling disoriented? And some of you are feeling pretty good about things. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit envious of that. So I think we're generally on the same page. Uh, these are, uh, as, uh, as you would uh, say uh, charitably, very interesting times uh, for us as followers of Jesus. So today, uh, as we continue our series uh, in Romans, I want to set the table by offering a perspective on where we are as followers of Jesus in relation Uh, to our cultural milieu. And just so you'll know, I'm not making stuff up. I'm going to use 
uh, a framework that I uh, found in an article in a journal called First Things, written by uh, a scholar named Aaron M. Wren, very insightful. It's called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. I commend the article to your attention. You can Google it up quite easily. There's a lot of provocative things in there. But he makes the observation that, you know, in my lifetime, uh, certainly, uh, I've experienced uh, three different types of relationship uh, with the dominant culture as a follower of Jesus. And uh, Wren describes uh, the uh, first stage uh, in this as the positive, the positive world. And he says this ended right about 1994. I think it might have ended a little bit earlier, but we can quibble. And, and he defines it as follows. Society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. That's Wren's observation about the way things were. Um, he says before 1994, again, we can quibble, but things were that way uh, at some point in time. Uh, and then he says the next stage of development he calls neutral world. And he dates this from approximately 1994 to 2014. Again, I, I'm slightly uh, disagreeing with his dates, but let's just work with the framework. Society takes a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer has a privileged status, but is not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christian moral norms retain some residual effect. Now, I remember that season. Uh, I think that's uh, one I remember quite vividly. I think, I've, uh, <clears throat> I think we all can kind of remember that vaguely. Now, whether, whether that ended in 2014 or 2012, we can argue. Uh, negative world, 2014, approximately till the present cultural moment. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, that's Wren's observation. Uh, I concur based on what I'm generally seeing. You may disagree and think that things are okay right about now, but just work with me. I, uh, I think this framework is helpful, and it has a variety of implications, but let me clarify one thing about it, so there's no confusion uh, in terms of where I'm coming from or what I think the biblical perspective is, and that is pre-1994 uh, and to the present moment, uh, one thing has not changed, and that is the bogus world system has always been the bogus world system. That there has always been a sharp line of demarcation between uh, uh, the kingdom of God and the values and ways and means of the world. Even if at one time this was a more comfortable culture 
for people uh, who were followers of Jesus, uh, that should not be confused with this at some time being an idealized state in which we were a, uh, in any sense, meaningful sense, uh, a Christian uh, nation. Uh, that's, just, that's just not the historical reality. It's not a biblical reality. Augustine talked about this uh, uh, in his own time, and it's true today. That doesn't mean I didn't like things better back then. But it just means we have to be clear that the bogus world system has always been the bogus world system, and the church uh, should always be and shall always be a countercultural or alternative cultural community embodying uh, the radically the radical values of the kingdom of God uh, rather than uh, uh, capitulating to a dominant uh, cultural uh, uh, disposition that's oriented towards pride and violence and uh, selfishness, etc. Basic human, the basic human predicament. Uh, the church should be the alternative community. So let me, I just don't want to confuse this with some that I'm calling us back to 1957 as some idealized uh, place and time. But I think it's true that it's different game now for those of us who want to be evangelists, who want to be witnesses for Jesus uh, in our workplace and in our communities and our neighborhoods. It's a different type of conversation that we have to have now. Because it's true that there is often uh, an immediate, visceral, negative, or even hostile reaction uh, to the message of Jesus in a way that there wasn't necessarily uh, a few years ago. It's just a fact. So what do we do as followers of Jesus when the world does not like us? The devil wants us to start off by whining and then transition to bitterness with a spoonful of self-aggrandizing anger. Do not do that. That's a, that's a trap, <laughs> okay? There's a better path. We're not the first Christians uh, to be misunderstood and maligned. We are the whiniest generation of Christians in history, but we're not the first ones to be misunderstood or maligned. How did the culture-shaping elites of the Roman Empire review Christians in the first and second centuries. It's good to have a little historical perspective. Would you be surprised to hear that they had a negative view? You can consider this short list, and it's not a comprehensive list, of the documented accusations uh, or slanders about the first generations of the followers of Jesus that were brought by the dominant cultural elites back in the day. Christians were accused of cannibalism. That was, a, that was a sincere and vigorous accusation. Uh, and why were Christians accused of cannibalism? Anybody want to make a guess? Well, they gathered and they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of uh, this a crucified, uh, a crucified Messiah. I mean, that, that was misunderstood, and they were maligned. And I think that was, you know, an unfair accusation. Can we agree on that? All right. Christians were accused of 
gross immorality. And for, uh, for the Romans to accuse you of gross immorality, uh, the, the accusation was incest. Because Christians were calling each other brothers and sisters, they had this familial uh, rhetoric that was confusing to the dominant culture, and they really, really loved one another, uh, and so the accusations were launched. Christians were accused of atheism, of all things, because they only believed in one God, and that uh, was inconsistent with the uh, dominant theological perspective of the day, the many gods. Uh, of Rome. Christians were accused of a lack of patriotism because they could not and would not make the, make the uh, civil public confession of a good Roman citizen that Caesar was Lord and Savior. And Christians finally were accused because of all of these other things, the culminating uh, accusation was Christians were the root cause of various disasters that were uh, occurring in Rome, including the catastrophic fire that, uh, uh, in Rome. And this was blamed on the Christians. <clears throat> so when Paul uh, wrote this letter, this masterpiece that we've been looking at, in 56, 57 A.D. He knew that hard times were coming. Uh, he knew that hard times were inevitable because Christians would not, could not uh, confess that Caesar was Lord and Savior, and Christians would not, could not uh, uh, capitulate uh, to the values uh, and the ways and means of being uh, good Roman citizens the way that was defined. And because Paul knew this conflict was inevitable, he planted a lot of information in this letter that would be helpful uh, for Christians facing hard times. You can reread that last part of Romans 8 about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, love of God which is ours in Christ Jesus, and, and look at the list, which includes the sword. And he's referring to the sword of the Roman authorities. So within 10, 10 years of this letter, a landing in Rome, Nero launched his cynical, political, politically expedient attack on the Christians in Rome. Nero made a spectacle of his cruelty. Some believers were set on fire, and others were torn to pieces in the arena by wild beast, and the citizens of Rome enjoyed the show. It's good to have a little perspective. But the church was ready for hard times, and the faith continued to spread. If we want to be ready for hard times, we can certainly learn from our passage today. But before we get to Romans 9, 12, 9 and following, let's uh, reset uh, this in the context of the 
unit, literary unit, uh, rhetorical unit that begins in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So we talked about this last week. I won't re-preach that entire sermon, so don't worry. But it, it is foundational to what happens in Romans 9. Everything in Romans 9 hangs on what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in response to the mercies of God, uh, present your bodies, present the totality of your being. Present all that you are and all that you aspire to be. Present that as a sacrifice, living uh, and set apart and pleasing to God. And then he goes on to say, and stop being conformed to the ways and means of the bogus world system, but be continually transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may experientially validate what is the will of God. Right? So that's, that's where this hangs. What we're talking about in Romans 12, 9 and following is only within the realm of possibility if we, on a daily basis, are presenting our lives and then we are saying no to conformity to the bogus world system and we're saying yes to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, everything I'm about to say is just, just words with no possibility of being lived reality because we cannot do this by our own resources. We cannot do this by our own cleverness, willpower, determination. Uh, this is not a, a self-improvement uh, program that we've signed up for and we say yes to Jesus Christ. So God's goal for us is to renew our minds, to give us his perspective so that we will be fully alive. So when, when, when it talks about a living sacrifice uh, in Romans 12, 1, uh, the word there is zosan, which is from the Greek uh, word zoe, which means life. Now there's two words for life. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, bios, which refers to our biological, physiological existence uh, in the material sense, and there's zoe, which is often referring to that life, which is our participation in the very life of God through the power of the resurrection. It's talking about the newness of life. Life is God created us to live it. So when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about Zoe. And so when we're talking about the kind of people we are as sacrifices, living sacrifices, it's living by the power of God, living that life. And so uh, in that sense, we are set apart for mission. And we're set apart for mission not as a bunch of disparate individuals, but as a countercultural community that experientially validates the goodness of God's will and that joyfully participates in the Shalom Restoration Project. That's what our passage is about. I could probably stop there and you could read the passage and connect the dots yourself, but I still have like 11 minutes to fill. So let's, so let's keep going. So our passage today describes our life together in such a countercultural community. Uh, <clears throat> And so here's, uh, here's my <clears throat> New Jack version. This is my translation. Uh, it's overly literal in places. I'll explain why. Uh, <clears throat> Love without hypocrisy. Abhorring what is evil, clinging tenaciously to what is good. Brotherly love, being mutually affectionate to one another with family-style reciprocity. Honor, proactively seeking to honor one another. Diligence, not slacking. Prayer, in fuego. The Lord, serving. Hope, rejoicing. Tribulation, enduring. Prayer, 
persevering, the needs of God's people, partnering, hospitality, pursuing opportunities. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing, weep with those who are weeping. Thinking in sync with one another, not thinking yourselves high and mighty, but hanging out with the so-called lowly. Not flattering yourselves in your own thinking. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, but giving thought to what is good in the presence of all people. If possible, so far as it is up to you, being agents of shalom for all people, never taking your own revenge, but leave room for wrath, beloved, for it stands written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but triumph over evil with good. So if you're listening carefully to that and maybe comparing it to a a legitimate Bible translation, such as the one in the pews here, uh, you might make a couple of observations. Note that in my translation, this is not a series of imperatives. This is not a series, a set of directives and commands. Uh, It is a list of practices comprised primarily of Greek participles and infinitives. Any English majors here? Is this a love language for you? Most of you are checking out right about now, I understand. But there's a difference grammatically between uh, that which is an imperative and then infinitives and participles, slightly different things. Now, infinitives and participles can't have imperatival force. I don't want to debate about this. But but we don't want to miss the point here, okay? Uh, English translations have rendered everything in this passage as a set of imperatives. Uh, And that translation decision is understandable because there is a sense of oughtness in the list. However, the translation decision obscures how this list is mostly descriptive rather than prescriptive and is integrally connected to verses 1 and 2 rather than being a series of independent obligations. This is what a community looks like if we present ourselves as a sacrifice. Say no to conformity to the status quo of the bogus world system and say yes to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I will not have time to cover each of these uh, pieces uh, of the puzzle. That's 13 different sermons by my reckoning. But uh, uh, if you read them, and I hope that you will read them carefully, you can see the characteristics of this countercultural community include charity, and I'm using that word in the King James Bible version, uh, uh, charity, love, humility, empathy, hospitality, and generosity. Those are the marks of authentic Christian uh, community. Uh, and you will note, if you read carefully, a lot of this echoes uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he is laying out the manifesto of the kingdom of God. What happens when the presence of the kingdom of God uh, as, a, as, a, as a visible community in the midst of the bogus world system. This has always been what Jesus was about, was putting together uh, this, these people who, by grace, are saying yes to his uh, 
Yes to his forgiveness, yes to his power, and yes to his shalom restoration project. So in the few minutes that we have left, uh, I just want to focus on two of the realities that permeate this passage. Uh, the first one I call the credibility of love. So Paul starts his list with these words, hey agape. Now that's not hey like in hey buddy, that's the Greek definite article, the love. That's how he starts the list. This is, this is not a command, this is the title, summary title of the descriptive list that's coming. So love here is not a verb, uh, it's a noun. There is no verb in Romans 12, 9. This is a summary heading for what follows, and Paul fine-tunes the heading with an adjective, anupokritos, and which is literally the, the alpha in front of a Greek word. It means not. Upokritos, you've heard this word. It's uh, transliterated as hypocrite. Uh, it referred uh, in antiquity to those who were participants in a, in a play. It didn't necessarily have negative consequences, but Jesus definitely gave this word extremely negative connotations in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what he noticed is that one uh, potential response to the good news of God is this bogus religiosity. For whatever reason... Any of us would go about pretending to be something we're not as followers of Jesus, but that's a real temptation. And I myself have fallen for it. So he says, uh, love without hypocrisy. So Paul's list is not then referring to a phony knockoff of love, not a simulation of love, not a calculating or tactical type of winsomeness, but authentic love flowing from the source, capital S. So <clears throat> I'm going to lay some very deep theology on you, so deep that I only have a toddler's understanding of what I'm about to say. And here it is. God is love. That's not simply a statement about what God does. It's a declaration of who our Trinitarian God eternally is. The eternal loving communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the source of authentic love. By the mercies of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ, we are invited to participate together in the eternal loving communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I understand about 0.004% of what I just said. But I think what I just said is about the most awesome thing that can be said about what God is calling us to. that we together can be connected, integrally connected as participants in the source of love. This is what meets the deepest longing of the human heart. 
This is the missing ingredient in every human life. And this is the invitation that God extends to us every day because of the completed work of Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection. We get a foretaste here and now of that love in the Eucharist and in worship. Thank you, band, by the way. And in great conversations with four-year-olds. God wants our neighbors in this broken and rebellious world to get a sneak preview of that love by looking at us. And in the history of the church, that is how a small group of social outcasts and rejects and nobodies turned the world upside down in the first two centuries of the church. Church history proves that the gospel is still dynamic power when the culture is hostile. One might argue that the power of the gospel is displayed more clearly when the culture is hostile. So today in our culture, we have two persistent and obvious needs. First, we need to know that our lives matter. There's a real debate about that today. Significant number of our neighbors and coworkers feel increasingly isolated, disconnected, and alone in a world that seems to be devoid of transcendent meaning and purpose. This has been described as the crisis in meaning. And it must be connected in some way to the mental health crisis. Second, we need somebody to trust. An unprecedented percentage of people today no longer trust our dominant cultural institutions or our information sources or our elected leaders. This is the credibility crisis. How do we decide whom to trust? We are created as human beings to trust. It's necessary for us to be able to trust. And yet, there is a crisis because a lot of people have the sense they've been lied to. And why would anyone be surprised that the bogus world system, whose God is the father of lies, is a system that's perpetrated by lies? So there's this crisis of trust. Authentic love from the source, embodied and lived out in practical ways in a Christ-centered community, has the potential by grace to address both needs. Now, I've been reading and rereading a book uh, titled Love Alone is Credible. Uh, now that I've read it three times, I think I can confidently say I understand about 11% of what this author is saying. But I cannot shake the power of the title, love. The love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, love that became flesh, the love that was demonstrated on the cross, the love that became God-forsaken for our sakes. Love alone is credible and trustworthy. And by grace, we are beneficiaries and agents of that love. Romans 12, 9 through 21, describes what that love looks like. That list. Okay. So that's the first reality. 
The second reality uh, I want to talk about, and I really just have a couple of minutes to cover a huge topic, is the conflict between good and evil. Because you'll see that good and evil is a recurring refrain uh, in this passage. So when I was in college in the 1970s, I was taught that sophisticated and nuanced thinkers were properly uncomfortable with the rigid categories of good and evil. Real life was not black and white, but was various shades of gray. Life is complicated. Who are we to judge? This was the perspective of philosophical relativism. And it may at the time have been a necessary corrective to the simplistic method of moralizing that always assumes that our cause or opinion or practice is unequivocally good, that always assumes that God is on our side. Now, Jesus warned us against people who made those types of assumptions. And to the extent the philosophical relativists were reacting to that way of moralizing, that self-serving uh, definition of good and evil that always, uh, where we always put ourselves in the good category and the others in the evil category. Uh, <clears throat> okay, point taken. But a better corrective uh, to that way of thinking is not to deny the reality of good and evil, it's to recognize our own reality as human beings. And here uh, we can do no better than quote a great Christian, one of the great Christian men of the 20th and 21st century, uh, Solzhenitsyn. Uh, <clears throat> gradually, uh, he writes, it was disclosed to me. Now, do you know his backstory? Gulag. Gulag. Uh, he wasn't writing as a, in a theoretical way about the Gulag. I mean, he was... He was a sympathizer to the revolution uh, of the communists uh, in the 1917, uh, but he got crosswise due to some uh, letters he wrote that were read by someone who told Stalin about him, and then his life took a different trajectory altogether. Uh, because uh, uh, in the paradise of the Soviet Union, you could not say anything bad about Stalin. So, so Solzhenitsyn, this great man, uh, is sent to this gulag, and, it's, and God works in his life in such a powerful way. Uh, there's, a, there's a fantastic biography of Solzhenitsyn written by a guy named Joseph Pierce. Uh, I highly recommend it because Pierce understands the way God uh, and faith uh, shape this amazing man. So, so anyway, I I've, I've don't have time to talk about that. So here's the quote. Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line of separation, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. That's right. That's right. So as we begin to think about good and evil, we should think about it in terms of that humble, humbling uh, reality. So relativism, of course, was not a sustainable philosophical perspective. And you may have noticed 
that we are once more in a culture that celebrates some actions and dispositions as good and condemns other actions or dispositions as evil. We no longer live in an age of relativism. We, in, we uh, live in an age of a new form of moral absolutism. The problem is, um, it seems that the loudest and most powerful voices in our culture are calling good things evil and evil things good. As followers of Jesus, we cannot just go along to get along. So quickly, let me define the terms because I think you have a good sense of what good is, but remember, good ultimately is not an it, it's a who. There is one who is good, Jesus says. Uh, so good is not a set of ideas. Uh, good is a person. Good is the source. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Trinitarian God, and that eternal communion, that is good. Uh, and, and the source gets to define what is evil. And according to the source, evil is that which vandalizes the shalom, is that which is anti-shalomic, that which damages or, or destroys uh, the human beings made in the image of God. That's the definition of evil. And that's why the source who is love, we learn in Proverbs 8, actually hates some things. If you read this passage in Romans 8, I mean, Proverbs 8, 16, you know, uh, it starts off in this kind of tricky way. It says, you know, six things uh, Yahweh uh, despises, seven things he detests, right? <laughs> Something like that. It's, since I'm not good with math, I mean, I get, I get confused right there. But the point is, that's a, it's a Hebraism for saying this is just a list. Don't get hung up on the numbers here. Uh, but this is a good uh, illustrative list of what the source who is love hates. It starts off with, you know, uh, haughty eyes, human pride, uh, a lying tongue, uh, hands uh, that shed innocent blood, uh, a heart that premeditates uh, destructive actions, um, feet uh, that run to do evil, uh, a false witness who slanders, uh, and a brother who stirs up trouble uh, in a community. Something like that. I may have gotten them out of order. But, but God hates some things. But notice, it's not, it's not persons he's hating here. He's talking about these actions which are destructive to persons. So it's just we have to deal with this because remember, uh, the first thing on our list in terms of good and evil is the, is the fact that this community that follows Jesus, which is, which is manifesting the love from the source, will, will be abhorring what is evil and clinging tenaciously to him who is good. That we actually will, by the Spirit's transforming power, renew our minds to have God's perspective on what we should hate. And that is that which destroys the shalom of creation, that which destroys human beings, that which dehumanizes, depersonizes. So we, we can't be neutral observers. Uh, we are called to have a perspective on good 
and evil. Remember, it starts with the humble recognition that that line cuts right through my heart because, you know, several days this week, uh, I was the guy with the haughty eyes, right? I had the heart that was cooking up some uh, mischievous plan. That was me. That was you. So it's not the other guys. And so, so as we have this perspective on good and evil, we start with a close examination of our conscience, and we should be ready, willing, and able to confess to one another. Uh, all right. The next thing uh, uh, Paul writes about this, this description, is never paying back evil for evil to anyone, but giving thought to what is good for all people. So that's, that's a clear line of demarcation between the way we should be handling our business uh, and conflicts and the way and means of the bogus world system. We are not a community that is oriented towards vengeance, to getting even, uh, to getting over, uh, uh, to winning in that bogus world system way. And so Paul goes on to give some... some uh, uh, instruction that echoes uh, Jesus exactly in the terms of the way we should handle those who set themselves out as our enemies. Now this one cryptic uh, statement here about in so doing by giving food and drink uh, to that person who would destroy you, uh, you're going to uh, allow room for God's vengeance and thereby heap burning coals on their head. I think the best reading of the burning coals part uh, is not literal. Uh, in fact, it's not even uh, that it would be damaging to the other person. It's that their conscience would be seared by the way that they, their hostility is met with grace. I mean, the best example of that, and was right about when we started moving into negative world, was, you remember that prayer meeting in South Carolina? Where this, uh, you know, terribly destructive, self-destructive, hateful young man uh, is welcomed into a prayer meeting in a church and begins to gun people down. Now, <clears throat> the real story there was not <clears throat> systemic uh, white supremacy. It's a tragic event. The real story there and it didn't get a lot of coverage, was the way the church responded to that hateful aggression that took the lives of their precious family members. Go, go, go read up on that. That's the church. The, the media of the bogus world system didn't want to cover that part, but it's there. So... <clears throat> Um, all right, finally, we are here to win. And Paul makes it clear. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but triumph over evil with good. We are absolutely all about winning, <laughs> okay, in the biblical sense, in the way Jesus won, by trusting God uh, by taking uh, all the violence and pride and anger of the bogus world system uh, and responding uh, in love. 
from a cross with the confidence that that type of love from the source is ultimately vindicated by the power of God. So, so there you go. We're not neutral bystanders when it comes to good and evil. We're allowed to have an opinion. The opinion should start with a baseline humble recognition of where that line between good and evil runs. Uh, but then together, uh, we, have a, we have an example of how what winning looks like, and it's a cruciform shape. That example is Jesus on a Roman cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this letter, um, so much uh, that you have to, to say to us, um, thank you for the, the source. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the invitation to be uh, participants in the, the communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for the invitation to be agents of that love in this world that desperately needs your love. Um, May you fill us uh, for this mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.